Hi everyone and welcome to another episode of the Motherkind podcast with me your host Zoe Blasky where each week I chat about all things motherhood and well-being. My mission with this podcast is to help you reconnect to you, to feel happier, more joyful, calmer and that little bit kinder to yourself because I think life as a mum in this hectic modern world is hard enough as it is. I believe becoming the happiest, most alive version of ourselves is the most important and inspiring thing we can do for our children. This episode is kindly sponsored by NHS Test and Trace. With the kids finally back at school, hurrah, and some normalcy returning, we're all keen to keep life moving, aren't we? So, NHS Test and Trace are encouraging all adults in England to get tested twice a week using totally free rapid COVID-19 tests, which are now available for all adults in England. So, testing is going to help prevent the around one in three people who have COVID-19 but with no symptoms. So, they spread it with absolutely no knowledge that they are doing that. So we're all really busy, but rapid testing is a fast and easy way to find out if you have coronavirus with results in around 30 minutes. Isn't that brilliant? So you can order tests to home, which is what we've been doing, go to a test site or participating pharmacies. For more information and guidance online, go to nhs.uk forward slash get tested. That's nhs.uk forward slash get tested. And the more of us that take part, the more we can help protect each other. So, on to this week's episode. My guest on this week's podcast wants you to know that happiness is easier to achieve than we're led to believe. Mo Gordat is the former chief business officer of Google X. He's the author of the international best-selling book, Sold for Happy, and the founder of One Billion Happy. Mo's story is incredibly inspiring. In 2014, he endured the tragic loss of Ali, his 21-year-old son, after a very routine surgery went wrong. And motivated by his loss, Mo began pouring his findings into his book and now his mission in life, Solve for Happy. Mo's mission is to help one billion people, isn't that amazing, become happier with his business, One Billion Happy. It's his attempt to honour Ali, his son, by spreading the message that happiness can be learned and then shared. It's a really beautiful conversation. And Mo shared that his word for the year this year is flow. And I feel like that really underscores our conversation. There was really flow between us. And I hope you can hear that. You know, I didn't have any notes in front of me and I was really just guided with Mo and his wisdom just shines through. And one of the things that I really took from this conversation was that the key to happiness is acceptance of who you are and where you are. And it's when we try and resist our reality that we become very quickly unhappy. There is so many incredible ideas and takeaways from this episode. I cannot wait to hear what you think of it. I hope you enjoy it. Here it is. My welcome to the podcast. I've got to say, I first saw you on Channel 4, and I know a lot of people probably say this to you, in 2017, and I remember crying, and then I read your book, and I'd already started the podcast. You know, it's just amazing, isn't it? I'm sure you have this with your podcast, the 
synchronicity of when you get the guests on. Yes. It's always in the perfect timing. And, you know, you've been on my radar for a long time, but I can't think of a better time to be talking to you than with what's going on right now. So I'm super Absolutely. excited. Absolutely. Always the right time. And thank you for reading the book and thank you for remembering me now, what, four years later. So there we go. Well, I think your story, particularly as a parent, you know, and this podcast is for parents, I think is unforgettable. Just the, the power in it. It's so, can't wait to get into it with you today, to be honest, because there's so much, a full spectrum of humanness. There's so much pain and yet there's so much magic and beauty and I feel like you, you write and talk about that so eloquently and powerfully. I don't know how anyone could ever forget your story, to be honest. It's really funny. I was thinking the other day, you know, Ali, my son, was studying in Boston in uh, Northeastern University before he came to visit us and had that uh, medical error took him away from us. But when he was living in Boston, you know, Ali and I, are man friends. You know how man friends are? We we don't talk every day, but when we connect, we really deeply, deeply connect. And when he went to Boston, he was this very handsome, very, 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 very wise, funny, wonderful young man. And uh, I wouldn't see him for maybe three, four months at a time. We would talk maybe once a week, once every 10 days, you know, we loved each other in a very special way. So we would joke and we would smile and, you know, I just get to know that he's okay. And that's all I cared about. Really. I didn't need him to talk to me for an hour and tell me every detail. I didn't need him to tell me about his studies. All I wanted is to know is he's okay. And that's somehow, I don't know if, you know, it's not a spiritual thing, but Somehow I know he's okay. Somehow in my heart right now, I know he's okay. And yeah, he's a little further away than Boston. And it's been a little longer than a few months. But I don't know. Somehow I feel he's okay. And so with that, I have to say, I think my journey with Ali has been more magic than pain. Much more magic than pain. I mean, I had him for 21 and a half years. I lost him for seven years now. And so if you count the 21 and a half years of amazing blessings to have him, you know, I will have to say the pain of the seven years pales in comparison. And yeah, I mean, in a very, very unusual way, I just would do it all over again. I feel so blessed to have had him that I don't mind the pain of losing him. It's so profound to hear you talk about that because it's not how as humans we're designed or encouraged to think about pain and loss in, in in so many ways we're taught to resist our reality and what I'm hearing is so much acceptance and peace and I know that's so core to your yourself for happy in your equation and I want to talk about that how did you get to that place of acceptance did you get there quickly or did you fight it were you were you angry tell us about the, the mess in the middle before you got to the wisdom or did you get to the wisdom straight away I got to the acceptance four hours later I'll have to say I slightly disagree with the statement that we're not designed this way I think we are designed this way I think we've been entitled and spoiled by the modern world but if you had imagined your life in the jungle 
you know, a few thousand years ago, that was your nature. Your nature was you moved on. Okay. You moved on with strength. You accepted the harshness of life. And if you did what we do today, you would be eaten by a tiger within four hours. It's as simple as that. Right. So in reality, if you think about how we are as beings in general, from the gazelle to the tiger to the human, we are supposed to deal with reality. We're supposed to make reality the input into our actions. But in the modern world, I think we're so spoiled that we start to complain about reality. We start to feel entitled that we deserve a better reality. I mean, I always make the joke. It's not a joke, but, you know, I, it's, it's funny that if you were born somewhere in India where you don't expect to eat every day, when someone gives you a bowl of rice, you're the happiest person on the planet, right? If you're born in London and you're locked down and then you click twice on your phone and Deliveroo or Uber Eats or whoever delivers you well-cooked, reasonably warm food when you haven't even moved your bum from the sofa, you go like, ah, that's wrong. I'm supposed to be out there eating, you know, in a restaurant and chatting with my friends, right? In reality, it's entitlement. In reality, if we realize our blessings by understanding how much worse things could be, it becomes easier to accept. This is one thing. The other thing is, do we ever have a choice? I mean, think about it. I could have complained and objected and, you know, hated life and turned it into a war on the surgeon and whatever. Okay. And I could have hit my head against the wall for 27 years. And then on my deathbed, Ali wouldn't be back. Uh, it's still it's exactly the same, right? The only thing that would be added to my life is the torture of the negativity, if you want. And I have to say, Culturally and religiously, you know, I grew up in an Islamic country and Islam itself, the word means finding peace through surrender. So even though it's not the way Islam is often applied when people teach it in mosques and so on, but the truth is at the core, at the very, very core, is an attempt to find peace, peace with yourself and peace with others. And the idea is it's not surrender as in raise the white flag and try and do nothing, but it's more surrender as in what I call committed acceptance. You know, accept what you cannot control and commit to make things better with what you can control. In my story with losing Ali, because at the time I was the vice president of emerging markets for Google and I was in Dubai. So I was a reasonably, actually, no, I had already moved to Google X. I was chief business officer of Google X, but I spent my life between Dubai and California. But I had before that worked seven years as a very senior Google executive based out of Dubai. And so I had contacts and, you know, people knew me and knew my work and very high officials in the government heard of what happened. And so they called and they said, you know, our condolences and we really feel sorry about this and we will get to the bottom of it. And basically they asked and said, would you mind if we perform an autopsy on Ali's body? So for our listeners who don't know, Ali was a wonderful, healthy young man and he had an appendix inflammation. So uh, the removal of the appendix is like the simplest operation known to humankind. It's like normally a four minutes thing. And the surgeon did five mistakes in a row. 
Each of them was preventable. Each of them was fixable. And just four hours later, we lost Ali. And so the government officials who called me basically said, do you mind if we perform an autopsy on Ali's body to prove the case, sort of? And I looked at his mother, wisest woman I've ever met. And I said, Nibel, do you mind if they perform an autopsy on Ali's body? And she said, of course, with her gentle, tender heart, she looked up and with a tear in her eye said, would it bring Ali back? And Nibel doesn't drop words that way. You know, the truth is, yeah, nothing we could do could ever bring him back. It's as simple as that. And if we engaged in all of those attempts, you know, in vain, really, to try and change that, yeah, we wouldn't go very far. It would just torture us from inside. And I have to say, I I sort of asked the person that was talking to me if I can call them back. And I sat down and I cried my heart out. And I said, yeah, I think that's the truth. And that basically anchored us in acceptance four hours later, because you can do anything you want. I tell my friends in the UK, you know, you can jump up and down and text whoever you want and post on Instagram. When you were locked down, you were locked down right? There was nothing you could do to unlock the community from the lockdown. And so it wasn't, it wasn't it easier to just accept and enjoy the hell out of it. People don't think that way, even though when you hear it, it sounds like, oh yeah, that's actually the most reasonable thing to do. So if it's not by design, what is it that creates this resistance to our current reality? Because I think it's that word resistance, isn't it? And Eckhart Tolle, who's one of my favorite teachers, says all stress comes from resistance. He's like, that's all you need to know in life. Yet I feel like I learn this lesson multiple times a day. Why is it so hard? The hundreds of teachings will teach you this. And Eckhart Tolle is one of my favorites as well and probably one of the people that really turned my unhappiness around. The design of the human brain is designed to detect what's wrong, to start. Yes, and this is what I meant when I said by design, because our brain are not designed for happiness, it's wired for safety, which is hypervigilance. Yeah, but safety is not contradictory to happiness. As a matter of fact, when you're happy, you're safer. But let's get to that in a second. So we have a negativity bias. And the negativity bias is basically telling you to see what's wrong. 60 to 70% of the thoughts in an adult brain are negative for the simple reason that if a tiger shows up, you know, your brain has absolutely no interest to say, oh my God, what a majestic animal, right? doesn't, you know, the patterns are very interesting on a tiger. Have you seen them? Nobody does that. You just look at the tiger and you go like, oh, we're going to die. And similarly, you know, your boyfriend or girlfriend says something hurtful on Friday, we're going to die. The government locks you down, which basically means you get to order from Uber Eats and work on Zoom and binge watch Netflix. But that's really the extent of the pandemic for you, unless, of course, you've been affected directly. And then you say we're going to die. And, you know, the um, taxi is five minutes late and we're going to die. And, and we start to do that with our negativity bias. Everything to us is a threat. Now, the design of humanity is to use that negativity, that unhappiness as a fire alarm. It's a survival mechanism. So unhappiness is triggered when your brain scans the world around it and says, something is not optimum here. I need to do something about it. So that's the design. The brain is working really well so far. The place where it breaks is what do we do when a fire alarm goes off? Hmm? We, we actually act. Hmm? When the fire alarm goes off, you walk 
out of the building and you start to do the right steps. You know, you verify if there is a fire, you see if you can do something about it, if there is, and so on and so forth. That's not what we do with, uh, with unhappiness. Mm -hmm. So unhappiness, when it triggers, you know, your boyfriend, girlfriend says something hurtful on Friday, you wake up the next morning and you go like, mm, remember that clip at 4 p.m. when they said something that hurt me? Let me play that again. Mm -hmm. Let me torture myself a little bit. It's like the Netflix of unhappiness. Okay. It's like, yeah, unhappiness on demand. Hey, I have the capability of playing the same scenario that already happened. It already hurt me, but I play it again in my head for absolutely no gain whatsoever. And then I play it again in my head on Sunday and say, oh, it's because he or she doesn't love me anymore. On Monday, I say it's because I'm fat. On Tuesday, I say he's going to leave me. On Thursday, I'm going to spend the rest of my life alone because I hate dating. And that story has nothing to do with the survival. As a matter of fact, it's working against your survival because, you know, some people will prolong that for three, four, five years and the relationship goes sour and everybody's unhappy and everybody's grumpy and they're not having sex and life is horrible. And uh, Right. And in that case, hmm, the original trigger, the fire alarm did its job. Unhappiness or worry or anxiety or fear or regret or shame or all of those negative emotions that we feel, they were there for a reason to trigger an action. The machine breaks post that because of what? Because we've learned not to take the action. Why? Because they told us when we were growing up that it's okay to be unhappy. It isn't okay to be unhappy. We were told that unhappiness is a reasonable tax to pay for other gains in life. You can be unhappy to stay safe with a partner that maybe is not really the correct partner for you. You can be unhappy at work because it pays the bills at the end of the month. You can be unhappy with friends that are bullying you and things that, you know, and not making you feel great because you need to fit in. And as long as you're convinced that you need to be unhappy, what do you do? Your brain keeps bringing up the problem. Hey, by the way, something is wrong. Do something about it. Walk out of the building and let's take actions. And that's where the cycle breaks. If we can fix that cycle, I actually have something I call the happiness flowchart, which is very, very, very analogous to the way you treat a fire alarm. If you can fix that cycle, believe it or not, and I'm not bragging here. So my mission is to reach a billion people with a message of happiness. So I need to become the Olympic champion of happiness. And I practice. I really do. I practice really, really, really hard. And I'll tell you openly, nobody is ever not unhappy, okay? So, I mean, I have some of my friends are, are the most renowned happiness experts in the world because of the nature of my work. So, you know, Matthew Ricard, who's actually announced as the happiest person on earth mm. or His Holiness the Dalai Lama, or, and I always ask them when I meet them. I mean, I asked Matthew Ricard on my podcast on Slow Mob, and I said, Matthew, so you don't get unhappy? I mean, and he laughed in his funny, lovely French accent. And he said, oh, I'm more, are you crazy? I get pissed off. I get angry. I get, right? And that's how it is. We do because it's the fire alarm. We need it. We need to know that something is wrong. And I said, so what do you do about it? And he does exactly what I do. It is the time you bounce back to happiness. How quickly do you come back to happiness is what matters. And I'm not bragging. On average, it takes me seven seconds from the minute I feel unhappy to go back to happiness. Okay. Last year, I had three incidences, one that took one hour, one that took four hours, and one that took one, year, one day. Okay. Otherwise, it takes seven seconds. Why? Because most unhappiness is unnecessary.
It's unwarranted. It doesn't solve the problem. It doesn't make things better. It doesn't get you to take the proper action and talk to your partner and say, hey, by the way, what you just said hurt me. Okay. Can we talk about this? Do I say things that hurt you? Please let me know. And by the way, those things, when you tell me they hurt me, can we work this out? And if your partner says, no, I'm not interested to work this out. Perfect. What's the next action? So do we don't want to be together? Perfect. There is 3.499 billion others that are qualified. Great. Life goes on. And I have to admit to you, when we're stuck, when we're stuck in that unhappiness on demand, this is what I call suffering, huh? the unhappiness, the original trigger I call pain. Suffering is that repeated on demand. Okay, let me sit down and torture myself a little more. If you realize that, you wouldn't ever, ever get stuck in that place. I teach happiness, or I used to, of course, before lockdowns, in large workshops. I probably taught more than 20,000 people face-to-face. Often some people will raise their hand and say, what are you talking about? You know, we're not supposed to be happy. Life is very different. I actually remember a woman came to me after one of my classes and she said, what are you talking about? How can I be happy? You have no idea, she said, you have no idea what happened to me. And she paused for a second and then she said, when I was 17, she was 74, 57 years later. And I hugged her and I said, So you've been obsessing about that thought for 57 years, about that event that happened when you were 17. Did it change anything? Did it wipe the event out? Did it make the person who hurt you come and apologize? Did it even make that person aware that he hurt you? And that's the truth. The truth is, you know, something could happen when you're 17. And yeah, of course, we grieve. And maybe a day later, a month later, a year later, you need to stop and tell yourself, What am I going to do about this? Am I going to be at that low when I lost my son? Am I going to stay there for the rest of my life? Is that what he would want me to be? Or am I going to try? I mean, he's gone. It's done. Committed acceptance, as I call it. Can I accept that he's gone and then start to commit so that I do something, a little thing that makes my life better despite his absence? As a matter of fact, I started to do things that made my life better because of his absence that made the life of others better because of his departure. And I think we all can do that. It's a choice. And if you make that choice, you actually go back to the natural design, original question, the natural design of humanity is feel the pain, okay, emotional pain, because it triggers your awareness that something needs to change. Do something about it if you can. And if you cannot, committed acceptance. Accept and do something that makes your life better despite its presence. Seven seconds. That process in my mind takes seven seconds. Is what I'm feeling true? Is the trigger true? I mean, if my brain tells me my daughter doesn't love me anymore, that's a lie. I say, no brain, she loves me. I have a lot of evidence that she loves me. F off. If it is true, then I need to call her. Baby, what did I do? If there is nothing I can do to change it, maybe I should perhaps learn to do something different that makes my life better, despite the fact that she doesn't like me for now. Maybe, you know, that's not true. My daughter loves me and I love her. But imagine if, hmm? imagine if, what would you do? You would say, okay, I'm going to continue to call and I'm going to continue to send her wonderful messages and I'm going to continue to send her flowers on her birthday and I'm going to do this. And I'm just, it might never bring her back, but I'm going to keep those committed acceptance because they make me feel better and make hopefully the future become better. I want to get into this because it's such an important point. That first step is 
deciphering a true emotional pain in your diagram that we then need to act on versus this in your story, you know, this critical story and narrative, just like you described with the partner saying something that by day five, the person's saying it's because I'm unlovable and I'm fat. How do we decipher what is that voice to just say, no, I'm not going there versus actually this is something for me to inquire and act on? Because I know that's where I can sometimes get stuck. Like, is this real? Is this something for me to just put to one side? That's just my critical voice. That's based on a childhood trigger, not going there. Or this is something for me to inquire. How do you decipher? So before you get there, you have to accept one thing. Anything you feel is true. If you feel unhappy, you are unhappy. There is absolutely no way it's not true. So step one is to actually accept, as a matter of fact, embrace your emotions. And I think one of the biggest, biggest challenges we have in the modern world is they told us, hold on, you don't bring your emotions to school. You don't bring them to work. Right. And so what do we do as a result? We hide them through through my work. I describe something that's called the safe model. And so if we're not supposed to show our emotions, maybe it's safer not to feel emotions and, you know, maybe not to acknowledge our emotions. And that's what we end up with. We end up with I am uh, stressed, but I'm not doing anything about it because I'm not supposed to, to be stressed. I'm supposed to toughen up. I am scared, but I'm not supposed to show I'm scared. We don't show it to others and we don't show it to ourselves. So step number one is cry your head off if you want to. Shout and scream if you have to. I mean, preferably not. But acknowledge the fact. Acknowledge the fact that you're feeling something. By the way, emotions are very simple to recognize, even if they're buried deep inside, because they have physical signatures in your body. When you're afraid, your whole body is shaking, you're unable to sit down, you want to do something, or if you're panicking, you're really, really heightened and adrenaline in your blood. If you're sad, you're low, you have no energy, you know, and so on. Acknowledge that. That's the first thing. Then ask yourself, what's triggering this? Why am I feeling this way? You know, my partner said something hurtful on Friday. Easy. That's the truth. Okay. He or she said, I really can't take this or or what, something, right? That's the truth. Is that what's making you unhappy? Because by the way, if it is, you can handle it. Normally what happens is something else is making us unhappy. So our brain takes that fact, that piece of input, adds to it a million little memories and traumas and conditioning and so on, adds to it a few assumptions, right? And then creates a story. So I'll use my example. I'm a a man. I can come back from work when we used to go to work. And I would say to my wonderful ex when we were together, I would say, hey, Nibel, can we please not talk right now? Okay. You know, she wants to tell me something and I would say, can we please not talk right now? Can we please not talk right now? Could have a million reasons. I'm tired from coming back from work. You know, I spoke too much today. I have a headache. I'm constipated, anything. It doesn't matter. Right. And I'm not talking about Nibel, but in a typical human's brain that would translate into, he doesn't want to talk to me. Okay. Is it because four weeks ago he wanted to be with me intimately and I said, no, not right now? Does that mean because he came 10 minutes later than normal that he was with someone else? I have been rejected in my first relationship. I can't afford to be rejected again, which by the way was 14 years ago. And that assumption and that story is basically what triggers you to believe, oh, he's cheating on me. 
And he just said, I, can we please not talk right now? But the thought that is triggered in your brain is he's cheating on me. Now, once you get to that thought, I promise you it's checkmate. Once you know truly and honestly what thought is triggering your emotion, not telling yourself what it is, but you know what it is, what is worrying you, what is scaring you, what is making you angry. If you get that thought, it's checkmate. Why? Because first practices, you will say, is it true? And your brain immediately will say, of course it's true. He said something hurtful and you'll say, hold on. But he got me flowers on his birthday a week ago. We made love two days ago. He called me in the morning and texted me and said he had a bit of a headache. What proof do I have that he's cheating on me? Did I see any signs that he's cheating on me? Maybe I should investigate. I want to know if it's true. I'll tell you my example. Huh? I and I, my daughter and I, we love each other to pieces. Like we really, really adore each other. And, and she's the light of my life and I love her. Aya is a very wise young woman. She really has opinions on a lot of things. And sometimes we argue. I remember vividly when I was in Montreal, I, you know, we argued about something. And so became heated. I said, baby, can I go out, have a coffee? And then we come back and talk about it. She said, yeah, sure. Better than arguing. Went out. The first thing that my brain tells me as I walk out of the building is, Aya doesn't love you anymore. Okay. I treat my brain as a third party. My brain is not me telling me things, right? My brain is someone who has this job that works for me, a biological organ that works for me, that has the job of making sense of the world. It can make mistakes. It can miss things and it can say stupid things like Aya doesn't love you anymore. And I stopped, I swear to you in the middle of the street. And I said out loud, what the F did you just say, Becky? I call my brain back. I said, what the F did you just say? What evidence do you have for saying this and destroying my life? That one comment can destroy my entire life. If I believe in it, I could be 57 years later still believing in it. And what evidence do you have? I mean, if there is evidence, show it to me. I mean, she texted me yesterday to ask me to come and have breakfast with her. She sent me hearts afterwards. She frequently every two or three days out of the blues texts me and says, I love you. I miss you. I want to, you know, see you soon. I say the same to her. Where did you get that from? Now, if you can go through that logical thinking by treating your brain as a third party, okay, treat your brain as a bad friend. You know, if a bad friend comes to you and says, hey, by the way, Jackie said you're an idiot. Verify. If a bad friend says that, verify. Call others. Say, is Jackie saying things about me? You know, call Jackie and say, Jackie, did I upset you? Verify. That's number one. If it's true, we're going to do something about it. If it isn't, drop it. If it isn't, drop it. Don't waste your life on things that make you unhappy, but are not true. Things that make you unhappy, but are not true, believe it or not, are 99% of our unhappiness. Most of the time, it's a story that we've built. And most of the time, most things don't matter. I remember I had a very dear friend at Google when I worked there. And we, you know, at Google, we had a very large 19,000 people at the time. And so many, many buildings. So she had to take an Uber to come to my meeting. And when she showed up, she said, oh my God, that Uber driver was horrible. He was rude. He took the longest route. When I told him to take a different route, he shouted at me. And I was like, I'm so sorry. And you want to talk about it? And she said, no, 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 let's go get coffee. And I'm like, what? That's it? It seems to have been a horrible experience. And she said, yeah, it was a seven minutes horrible experience. Do I want to spend the rest of the day obsessing and feeling bad about it? 
Do I want to spend seven hours feeling about something bad about something that took seven minutes? So that's number one. True, let's deal with it. If it's true, you ask yourself the second question. The second question is, what can I do about it? What can I do about it? You know, my partner said something that's worrying me. I go like, baby, did I say something that upset you? Okay. Why didn't you feel like talking to me that day? Is it because there is some, you know, our conversation is not going the right way. I mean, he will, she will probably say, oh no, I was so tired. Thank you for giving me space. But most of the time, if it is true, however, and there is nothing you can do about it, that's the Jedi master level of happiness. Okay. Jedi master is, yeah, Ali left. Uh, we're locked down. Someone loses their job. Well, th- that's the Jedi master because now there is something that is true and there is nothing you can do about it. And that's committed acceptance. Going back to the same idea. Uh, yeah, I lost my job. I can complain about that and cry and feel unhappy for six weeks. Is it going to make anything better? Will my employer call back? No. What I need to do is to say, okay, truth, lost my job. How can I reduce my expenses? How can I search for another job? How can I develop my skills so that I get those jobs? That's life. It's so true. I was just reflecting as you were talking about when I I had a breakdown when I was 23. And um, I was lucky because I got into amazing recovery and healing. And I learned a lot of this stuff and started getting into Eckhart Tolle and meditation and Buddhism. And someone said to me, every time your brain says something to you or your thoughts say something to you. I want you to say out loud, you know, F off. (laughs) I remember walking down the street and saying like, not that loud, but um, you know, F off, F off. And I was like, it was constant. And it was like this real moment of awakening for me. And I was like, I have been living up until this point, believing this abuse in my head. No wonder I'm, on the floor, stuck. It was petrifying at the same time because I was like, hang on a minute, if none of this crap is true about me, that I'm not the worst person in the world, that I'm not going to be stuck forever and on my own and I can't get a good job, Mm -hmm. then who am I? What's possible? Mm -hmm. As you were sharing, I haven't thought about that memory for ages, but I can vividly picture, I can even picture where I was on the street in London thinking, holy shit. It was like the, the clouds parted. Absolutely. It's all happening in here. You yeah. see, no events here in our heads, huh? no event has the power to make you unhappy unless you turn it into a thought and run it in your brain to torture yourself. Simply, I mean, Uber driver is rude. You walk out of the Uber, you're safe, your wonderful life is there, you're where you are. You may have wasted four minutes, but they're never coming back anyway. Now, here is a choice. Do you want to turn this into a thought and run it in your head for another couple of hours? Or do you want to say, well, it's happened. It's done. Let's move on. And 99% of the time, what our brain tells us is crap. Not because it hates us, by the way. Our brains are the best tools we've ever had. It's because of three reasons. One is we believe our brains are as me. We believe that the thought in my head is me talking to me. And so, of course, if it's me, it must be correct. I have to listen to it. No, it's not at all. It's your brain trying its best. And by the way, when it's trying its best, it sometimes makes mistakes and sometimes doesn't even know the truth. It doesn't know the truth. I mean, if you really think about it, how much do we know? How much do you know about your partner's day before you make the judgment of why he's saying, can we not talk right now? 
And that's number two. And number three, which is really, you know, the core of everything is that, yeah, your brain is more concerned about keeping you safe. And how were we raised when we were young? Mommy said, oh, you're not good enough. You have to do better in school. You have to do better in your manners. You have to do better in this, right? And so how do we treat ourselves? We treat ourselves the same way. Even though I have to say, I rarely ever meet anyone who's not amazing. Part of the reason why I love my podcast, it's really one of the most energizing experiences of my week. I record two or three times a week. is because every human being I meet is just simply amazing. It really is incredible. And I meet everyone. I meet from thought leaders and teachers that millions follow to, you know, I met the wonderful Susie Flurry, who's uh, 23 years old, who was bullied at school and was so open to tell her story. And maybe she's not, um, I believe she'll be very famous when she, you know, in a few years time, but she's not that famous yet. And she's so totally amazing, totally amazing. Her story and her resilience and what she went through. And it's wonderful. Every human being is. And you are, I don't know who you are. I haven't met you. Okay. But if you start to look at life as the truth, and the truth is there are a few things about you that are not that great about me too, you know, uh, about Zoe, about everyone. There is a few, Zoe, I didn't mean, I didn't mean that. I think you're amazing, but, but, you know, but everyone has a few things that are not great, but has many things that are amazing. Now, the trick is, and my wonderful son, Ali, he was so wise, Habibi, he was so wise. Ali goes to school and he goes like, okay, you know what? I'm just going to be friends with someone. But he was five or six at the time. We were moving from Abu Dhabi to Dubai. He goes to Dubai first school. He He becomes friends with Josh. Okay. Ali is the exact opposite of Josh. Ali is a tiny little Zen monk, like literally peace, you know, incarnated. And Josh was the devil himself, not in a bad way. No, it's true. I mean, you know, those kids that are just so energetic that as they're running so fast, they don't realize that they broke things and they're constantly screaming because there is so much energy, right? I, I, I need to do something with that energy. Anyway, so three days later, Ali comes back from school. It's a Thursday. So, you know, right before the weekend. And, you know, he says, okay, so I told George that I don't want to be his friend anymore. So if he calls, please tell him that I don't want to be his friend anymore. So two minutes later, George calls, as you can expect. And George goes like, hey, is Ali there? And I'm like, yes, George. But he said he doesn't want to be your friend anymore. And he says, okay, I'm coming. He doesn't listen. Half an hour later, his mother drops him off and leaves. And so George is running in the door. Where's Ali? Where's Ali? And and Ali, you know, steps down slowly and, you know, goes, George, so nice that you're here. Please enjoy your time here. I just don't want to be your friend anymore. So anyway, George plays and, you know, spends the evening and his mother comes to pick him up. Ali doesn't spend time with him. And I'm like, something really went wrong. So I go up and ask Ali and I go, Ali, what did he do? And he said, nothing, Papa. He's just so different than me that if I wanted to be with George, I would have to change. I would have to put so much energy and I would have to be loud and I would just to be his friend, but that's not me. And even if I did that, I wouldn't be good at it. So he wouldn't think of me as great in terms of all the fun that he likes. Maybe it's easier. Those were his words. Maybe it's easier if I, you know, just stay a little bit and maybe I will meet someone that is a little more like me. And if I meet someone that is a little more like me, I would be happy without having to put in the effort. Exactly what happened. Two weeks later, he meets Jack, exact copy of Ali. 
Then they meet Nick. Then that group actually stuck together until they were 18 or 19. Huh? And they were best friends and everybody loved them because they were so true and genuine. Think about that. Think about yourself. When you tell yourself, I have to be something other than me, what are you doing? You're attracting George. You're telling the world, I'm not good enough as I am, so I'm going to be something else. And you attract people who are attracted to that something else, who you're not very comfortable with, who don't appreciate you because you're not really the best at what you're pretending to be, who basically prevent you from being with the ones that you want to be with. I mean, the trick is very simple. Can you tell yourself, this is the person that I am, okay? I am bold. I'm a little funny. I love to be happy all the time. I am a geek. And that's who I am. That basically means I cannot mix very well with lawyers and bankers. Okay, it's, it's as simple as that. Even if they're bold, but you know, they're not the same character. They're a little different than I am. Great, I can either pretend to be like them and then my life will be horribly boring or I can actually look for geeks like me and we would have fun and we would play video games together and I would feel accepted and I would feel that everything's okay. By the way, nothing wrong with bankers. They're amazing. It's just not a skill that I have. And if we can accept that, if we can accept that I'm never going to be the best person on earth, I'm just going to have a few amazing things and a few horrible things. The horrible things, if they're fixable and improvable, I'll work on them, but I'll celebrate the amazing things. And people who love those amazing, amazing things will show up and say, you're bold, but you're funny. We love it. That's it. And life goes on. Are there any parts of yourself that you find harder to accept? So I work very deliberately on my conditioning. I've been, like everyone else, highly conditioned. And I follow a very serious practice, as a matter of fact, to discover how I have been conditioned. And it's very systemic. I do it two, three times a week. And I have to say, I'm very spiritual and I'm still reasonably religious. I'm not the typical religious person. I'm almost a follower of all religions rather than none, because I believe that there is a lot of crap in religion, but there is a beautiful core in every one of them. And if you can sort of find the core in each, you would probably have a, a wonderful view of something that's really beautiful. Anyway, having said that, I have to admit that my religious upbringing has really conditioned me in so many ways. In being a nice guy, not just an, a good guy, a, a person that is always trying to please, in being strict in things that didn't really need to be strict, in, in separating myself from my true nature sometimes. Being a Middle Eastern, and you know, like the Latins, a Middle Eastern man is manly, right? We want a man to be a man. And my understanding of the feminine and the masculine and male and female and all of that growing up was something that wasn't actually very accurate and wasn't a reflection of the truth of life and wasn't more importantly a reflection of who I am inside. So I'm currently working on my fourth and fifth book. My fifth book is called Her and it's about understanding feminine. And the truth is I'm 58% feminine. And I am accurate because I'm a freaking engineer. So that's the masculine side of me. But yeah, I developed a very reasonably accurate tool to understand how much of you is feminine qualities, how much of you is, is masculine qualities. And I believe I'm 58% feminine, but that's not how I lived most of my life. I'm Middle Eastern, man, beard, and at the same time, executive, businessman, mathematician. So all of the masculine traits, if you want, and I've lived 
in the professional world, living the same way, competitive, forceful, linear thinker, analytical, and all of that. While the reality is that this is not me at all. I mean, I have those skills, but they're not my natural traits. And so it's been six and a half years, believe it or not, where I'm working on empowering that other side, empowering that flow, the empathy, the ability for intuition, for creativity, of course, it's always been there and so on. And that's the feminine side. And believe it or not, I'm nowhere near where I think I can be. We're going to have to get you back on. Absolutely. When that works out, I absolutely want to delve into this more. But what was the cost? Because I had a corporate career for 12 years. Very, I actually chose very masculine businesses, industry, interestingly, automotive and in financial services. The cost for me embodying that masculine energy when actually I'm very spiritual, very soft in my core was very high. The cost for me was Mm. constantly teetering on burnout, constantly anxious, stressed, because I'm trying to push when actually my natural instinct is to flow. And I'm wondering what the cost for you was. You're clearly very successful, but what did it cost you? So you see, there is always the external chapters and the internal chapters. And that's what most people miss. On the external chapters, I'm very, very successful. I mean, even my current startup is incredibly successful. It's probably position to be in the future one of the most successful in ever in Europe, right? But I don't run it the same way I used to run my businesses before. But in general, my external chapter, which is something that I really encourage people to do, if you commit to something, do it right. So if I had committed to being a, a business executive, a, a logic-based individual, I need to do it right. And when I did it right, it really helped me succeed. Having said that, the internal chapters suffer. And they suffer in multiple levels. First of all, you don't feel yourself. You don't feel that yourself. And it's actually hard to find total peace when you're not fully yourself. But then after a while, because of neuroplasticity, what is not yourself becomes more you. And what is yourself becomes rusty. What you use grows and what you don't shrinks. So again, I'm not shy to say it and I'm working on it and I'm you know, it's a big part of why I'm writing the book. I write not for you to read. I write for me to learn. And so, you know, when I'm writing her, it's basically based on one of what I would consider the largest project of my life. This year is the year I call the year of flow. And of course, flow is the part of me that struggled massively. Why? Like you, I think you can really relate to that. So, yeah, you know, you come across as a person who's in the feminine, and if you force yourself to go through linear thinking and discipline, and and by the way, not, one is not better than the other. Huh? It's really important to understand. One is suited for a certain environment more than the other, but the other is suited for a different environment. And I always compare disciplined linear th- approaches to life, you know, as compared to flow, to whitewater rafting, if you've ever gone whitewater rafting. A linear masculine approach would be, I'm going to put my raw in pedals and and I will try to go up the stream to that point. I want that point over there. While the feminine will simply just float on top of the waves and every now and then just, you know, hit one wave a little bit to just balance your boat and just flow. Okay. And those are very, very different approaches to life. I have realized around 
four and a half years ago as in, into that project of empowering my feminine, that this is the part I struggle with most. That if I were to completely enable my ability to flow, it will flourish every other part of my feminine side, if you want. And so this is a very, very difficult project because of neuroplasticity. I'm so good at setting targets and achieving them. And, you know, it, it feels totally effortless. And I am so good at analyzing the situation and realizing where I need to be. But I have realized, which I think was the turning point, that most of the big things I've achieved in life, because my brain was lying to me, were not actually a result of my discipline at all. They were actually places that life took me that I have never planned to be. And then I used my masculine abilities to get things done. But that event itself, whether it was, you know, being hired at Google or writing Soul for Happy after losing Ali or starting Slow Mo, my podcast after the pandemic, which are mega, mega components of who I am today and mega components of my mission and my reach, they were never planned. They were never part of what I decided to do with my life. It's so fascinating to me, the control that I have when I'm in my masculine. Well, I try to control everything. Mm. And yet everything beautiful in life happens in flow. Happens in flow. I didn't control when I got pregnant. In fact, it's very difficult to control that. And trying to control it is mind-bogglingly stressful. I didn't control falling in love with my husband. I don't control staying in love with him. I don't control loving my children. And yet there's this part of us as a society, I think, and I see it in me, of, particularly when I feel afraid, First tool is to pick up the control. What can I do? What can I fix? What can I, you know, that kind of, but I think a lot of that did come from my corporate training, you know, and, and the house that I grew up in. And yet all the good things in life, all the good things I think or have experienced, I don't think I know, come from letting go of that. It's this absolute dichotomy, isn't it? Absolutely. And, you know, you're even letting go of control in this conversation and it's flowing all over the place and it's wonderful and enjoyable and people may like it or not, but it's wonderful in, in that it flows, right? Now, the weird thing is, and I'll tell you my experience, and if anyone has a, you know, an advice, please find me on Instagram and tell me. The challenge is I'm trying to work through my flow using my abilities to control. So I'm using my left brain to organize, you know, I start every year with something I say, I call my new year's intention. So, and every year has a, a theme to it. So this year is the year of flow. And then I found myself by January 7th, sitting down with my notepad, as I always do, and putting down the steps I'm going to take to flow. It's like, what are you talking about? That's so stupid. You're not supposed to have written down to flow. You're supposed to flow. And that's the whole idea that, that we are so trained by the modern world, by the corporate world, by the responsibilities, even if you're not in the corporate world, as a mother, let's say, in today's world, hmm, there are so many parameters you have to calculate all the time. And it's not like the old days where you, kids can go to and play with their neighbors or go play outside. Or Everything's protected and everything is designed and they have to go to tennis and they have to do this. And so What is that? Where is that coming from? My wise, wise, wise ex, she was opposed to all of that. And, you know, I'm the executive, like, Nibel, we should take them to do this and do that. And, and she would go like, look, look, they're not me and they're not mine. And I go like, what do you mean? And she says, they're not me. They're not like me. They shouldn't be doing things that I want them to do. And they are not mine. I shouldn't control them. 
I am theirs available for them so that I can enable them to be who they are. And that was the ultimate, she was the wisest mother I've ever seen, right? And basically all she did was just listen to what the kids wanted to do and gave them a chance. And I'll tell you openly, one of the most incredible experiences in life, if you think about Ali, we take him to swimming. He goes like, nah, not for me, horseback riding, nah, not for me. And then one day he wakes up and he says, I want to do archery. And we're like, archery, what is archery? I mean, like, where did that come from? Zen, he was always Zen. I don't understand, right? Anyway, so we look everywhere. We were living in Dubai at the time and we find that there is in the country club an archery team. And so we take Ali to the archery team and he goes four times in a row. And, you know, like he's spot on. He's really good to the point that the coach comes to his mother and he says, there is a championship, a national championship happening in two weeks time. I think Ali should enroll. Okay. He's not going to win, but you know, he should enroll just to get that experience. So Ali enrolls, practices one more time, goes to that thing and literally has a perfect 10. Every single one of his arrows is in the bullseye and he wins. So he becomes the champion at age 12, I think, or something like that. The champion of archery in Dubai. And then I believe it or not, he never touches a bow and an arrow again, ever in his life. He goes like, okay, so that's done, puts them down and that's it. And we still enabled them. We still said, fine, Habibi. So what do you want to do now? He says, I want to play the guitar. Sure. Go play the guitar. Becomes, you know, before he left Dubai, he had this incredible little band and he was like really, really prominent in the scene. And maybe he wasn't amazing in geography, which we all try to control our kids to be amazing in everything. Ali was just amazing at what he loved. Aya was incredible, incredible. She's an incredible artist. Again, if you don't mind me telling too many stories today, but, you know, Aya Nibel is a clean freak. My ex-wife is a clean freak. I loved that about her. And Aya was so artistic that she would paint on everything, like on the walls, on the furniture, on right. Anyway, so Anibel gets really, really, you know, angry about this. And she goes like, no, you can't do this anymore. So here is your room. You can only paint inside your room and you can't touch the walls. So a few weeks later, I call my Anibel, my ex, and I go like, Anibel, look at the walls. There are tiny little drawings, two millimeters by two millimeters, almost everywhere. Okay. So the poor girl was, you know, trying to conform to don't draw on the wall. So she would draw tiny, tiny, tiny things. Baby, it's amazing. Anyway, so I said to Nibel, don't control her, Nibel. Let's just let her paint. And she said, okay, Aya, within your room, paint anything. Paint the closet, paint the walls. Aya said, really? And we said, yeah. And so we went down, we watched TV, we did whatever, we went to sleep. We woke up the next morning and her entire room was painted. Until today, I actually keep her door on which she painted beautiful sky and a beautiful sun rising from the side. And I was like, what, why do we do this to them? I don't understand. Why do we try to control them? No fear, normally. Oh, fear, yeah. I agree. Fear of, are they going to fit into that world and succeed? Exactly. Yeah. Yeah, I can promise you they're more likely to fit in if they did something they love than they were good at. That's so true. I've just, I've loved this conversation. I think I could just talk to you all day. (laughs) It's just been incredible. I felt so present. 
I loved it too. You're an amazing conversationalist because you basically let me blabber. I've been talking for an hour. Well, so, I know what I hear, you know, I want to hear what you think. I know what I think about things. That's quite interesting <laughs> to me. <laughs> That's an amazing, amazing way of looking at life. Uh, yeah, I do the same when I'm hosting. I actually speak very little and I let the guests, oh my God, they share so much wisdom. Well, I think one of the things I love about podcasting and this medium and this conversation and, you know, it's just, I feel utterly present and it's just a moment in my day where I'm just so present. And I think that's why I love it so much. I do I just, too, yeah. I'm just so present. I always ask the same question at the end of every interview, which is if you could give just one gift to all the mothers in the world, what would that one gift be and why? I would wish for them to see themselves through my eyes, which I think is a reminder because I have to admit to you, I think the greatest achievement humanity has ever managed to achieve is motherhood. When you really, no, I'm, it's not a compliment. I thank you for the smile. It's not a compliment. It's that job that nobody gives you the manual for, right? That is full on, like 100% full on at an age where you, most mothers don't have the wisdom. It's actually quite funny. I mean, you think about it. If I was a father now, I would be so much better. And so mothers by nature, biologically, have not really gotten the full experience of life yet. And they're motivated by all of that pressure, all of the fear, as we said, but in tremendous love. And you put all of that together and you want to create not a product and not write a book and not compose a piece of music. You're creating a human. Okay. And yet somehow we forget to tell them how amazing this is. We forget to tell them that I don't think there is anything more valuable to humanity. As a matter of fact, my next book is entirely about that. I think humanity is coming to a point where if we could just create better people coming into the world, everything else will be taken care of. So Absolutely. You're the best. And whether it's you or my mom or my ex, the mother of my children, anyone listening, I think you're amazing. I really do. Mm, thank you. I'll take that to my heart. You absolutely should. Thank you so much. So that was the episode. I hope that you really enjoyed it. As ever, if you did, please consider sharing it with your friends and leaving me a review on iTunes. It really does make a difference to the number of mums that we can reach with the brilliant wisdom of the guests I have on. Also, just a reminder about the Family Reset Plan. It's my latest offering to parents. I think that we are living in probably the challenge of our lifetimes. Well, definitely so far. And as parents, we not only have to support ourselves, we also have to support our children. And that is a lot. So the Family Reset Plan is myself and two brilliant psychologists and we give you step-by-step, simple, applicable ways that you can support yourself emotionally to feel stronger, calmer, and therefore to support your children in a different way. It's all grounded in psychology and neuroscience. It's just £25 currently. And if you work for the NHS, it is totally free for you. So check out the website, familyresetplan.co.uk. Take care. I'll see you next time.